Good evening. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, to this fine fiction event. I'm Di Hope, and I'm absolutely delighted to be chairing Bernard McLaverty. He was born and brought up in Belfast and now lives in Glasgow. He has written four collections of stories and four novels, including Grace Notes, winner of the Saltire Scottish Book of the Year Award and shortlisted for the Booker, and The Anatomy School. He's also written extensively for radio and television, and he has written and directed the BAFTA award-winning award film By Child. Today, I'm delighted to say he's going to read from this really stunningly beautiful book, um, a collection of short stories, Matters of Life and Death, that have all the subtlety and the humanity that we've come to expect from such a fine writer. Once Bernard has written, uh, has read, we'll have a short conversation and then we'll open the event to, to you um, to ask some questions. So please join with me in welcoming Bernard McLafferty. The wee bag, uh, I suppose, is a bit of a hint uh, for later on. Uh, um, some time ago, I was asked to read in Kirkintilloch Library, uh, and I had a sore foot at that time, and I asked the organisation to send a taxi for me and they did and a taxi arrived and the driver was of kind of Asian or Eastern origin and he spoke with a French accent um, and I asked him where he was from and he said he was from Nice and uh, and then I complimented him on his English uh, and he said it wasn't as good as his Spanish so uh, he, he had French, English, Spanish, uh, and uh, but there was a cultural gap as well, uh, because he said to me, he says, do you live in Kirky? Uh, <laughs> and I said, no, no, I'd actually I don't. I'm, I, I live where you picked me up. Uh, I'm <laughs> <coughs> and I'm going to Kirky. Uh, to the library and she, he said what are you going to the library for and I said well I'm going to read to people <laughs> and he said can they not read themselves <laughs> uh, and, I, and then I had to explain about being a writer and stuff uh, but when he left me at the library uh, the last thing he said to me uh, when I explained about reading short stories and all that, he said, nobody has ever read a short story to me in my life. And I thought that was terribly sad. Uh, a great kind of cultural divide in some way. So, I mean, Edinburgh Festival, uh, book festival is about reading. It's about you listening. It's, uh, it's about literature. Uh, I'm going to read two stories. Um, One's quite short, uh, and the other is about 20 minutes. Um, if there's time, I might read another wee a fragment uh, of a story. I'll begin with the first story in this collection uh, called On the Roundabout. I suppose it's about doing something without thinking. 
But it was nothing really. Anybody'd have done the same. We were driving back into Belfast. We could have been in Oma or in a skillin, visiting Anne's aunt, maybe. But that's not important. It was the early seventies, and that is important. Not long after Bloody Friday, nine dead, God knows how many maimed, all courtesy of our friends, the provosts. So everybody was a bit hyper. It was beginning to get dark. I hadn't been all that long at the driving and I was feeling the family man, Anne in the passenger seat, the two kids in the back, like something out of Norman Rockwell. Seat belts weren't compulsory, but we were seat belt kind of people. Clunk, click, every trip. You remember that? I'm thinking about what we have to do before we can relax, get the kids ready for bed. I remember all this very vividly, the way you remember just before a crash. Tell them a story, maybe. They were the age for stories. We Kate was, anyway. At that time, she made you get every word right. Any deviation, and she'd have been up in arms. Sean was just talking, and no more. The other thing was that the car radio was on and they were saying that the UDA were out in force in certain places, stopping and searching. So I'm driving into that roundabout, the one at the bottom of the Grosvenor Road, the one that used to be Celtic Park. And there's this guy hitching, trying to get a lift before the cars go on the motorway. And there's a bunch of the UDA appear, about half a dozen of them wearing khaki and they go up to talk to the guy who's hitching. I'm about fourth or fifth in the queue onto the roundabout and I'm keeping an eye on the cars edging ahead and the UDA guys. You can never tell with them. There's one guy, he's wearing a black scarf and he produces a claw hammer and he whacks the guy hitching in the face with it and down he goes and they start laying into him for all they're worth. Boots, the hammer, the lot. There's only a couple of cars in front of us now and they scarper away like the clappers. They don't want to know. And Anne is screaming, did you see that? And her hands are up to her face. I put the boot to the floor, gun in the engine like, and before I know what I'm doing, I'm driving up the pavement straight at the UDA and they scatter and they're laughing. I'll always remember that, laughing their heads off, especially the guy with the black scarf, the one with the hammer. I'm doing this before I know I'm doing it. And it's like we've rehearsed it. Anne pops her seatbelt, leans over and opens the back door. I get out and manhandle the poor bastard onto the floor of the back seat. He's not unconscious, but he's fully he's not fully with it. He's bleeding all over the place. It's coming out of his eye and hitting the ceiling. We Kate is crying because she knows something's very wrong. The UDA guys are hanging back, still laughing. Maybe they think I'm the law or something. The army, maybe. Anyway. I just want out of there and I'm driving back onto the roundabout trying not to hit anything. I have a chamois for the inside of the windscreen and Anne's back kneeling on her seat, leaning over, pressing it up against the guy's face, trying to stop the blood spouting out all over the place. 
and I'm lucky because without knowing it I take the exit to the royal he keeps going unconscious and I'm shouting to Anne to keep him awake keep him awake and she's yelling at him what happened what happened and both of the children are crying now yelling their heads off and he says he was just hitching home to Lurgan and they said are you a Fenian and before I could even fucking answer them I'm on the deck and saying hold that there hold it to stop the bleeding and he's falling about but he's still talking he can't understand a minute ago he was trying to get home he says the funny thing is I'm a Presbyterian I start laughing at this looking over my shoulder a Presbyterian even he thinks it's funny Jesus then he falls backwards and his mouth opens and there's blood inside that looks black in the street lights he begins jerking and passing out and holds him up trying to steady him holds the chamois to his wound a hole between his ear and his eye the size of a ten pence piece he comes round again shouting I'm dead they've killed me the cunts have killed me by this time I'm driving up the wrong side of the road with my hand on the horn get out of my fucking way everybody thinks I've taken leave of my senses anyway we eventually get into the hospital and the staff take over it's only then that I start to get angry I try to give my name and address but the doctors and nurses don't want to know there's a Brit soldier there with his gun but he doesn't want to know either I've just witnessed an attempted murder and nobody wants to know and Anne's carrying Sean and pulling at Kate come on come on she's looking ahead to me in the witness box facing the UDA across the court we know your registration we know your whole family the kids weren't affected Sean doesn't remember a thing about it he was too young but we Kate does she was really scared and timid for a long time anyway that's what Belfast was like at that time but about two months later there was a long letter in the Belfast Telegraph the guy was out of hospital and he was trying to thank the good Samaritan family who'd helped him on the roundabout that night wasn't that good of him to tell the story? There's a wee hole in that seat in case I spill the water. It's a wee draining hole. Um... Here's a story of a different kind. Um, called The Clinic. It was still dark. He was never up at this time, except occasionally to catch a dawn flight. He picked up his sample, his papers, and the yellow card. The bottle was warm in his hand. He was about to go out the door when he remembered something to read, something to pass the time. In the room of the bookshelf, he clicked on the light. The clock on the mantel, the clock on the mantelpiece, told him he was running late. He grabbed a small hardback collection of Chekhov's short stories and ran. It was mid-November. 
people's Moscow white faces told how cold it was. Breath was visible on the air. The traffic was ten times worse than he was used to. He turned off into the hospital and got lost a couple of times before he saw the diabetic clinic sign. He parked ages away and half hurried, half ran back. He was breathless going through the door only to find that the place was upstairs. He was about eight minutes late and apologised. The receptionist shrugged and smiled as if to say, think nothing of it. That made him mad too. He had been so uptight trying to get there on time and now it seemed it didn't matter very much. If there was one thing worse than worrying, it was wasted worrying. He was asked to take a seat. The waiting room was half full even though it was only twenty to nine. There was a row of empty seats backing onto the window. He sat down, glad not to be close enough to anyone to have to start a conversation. A Muslim woman in a black hijab talked to her mother who was similarly dressed. The language was incomprehensible to him, but he was curious to know what they were talking about. All the men's magazines about were about golf or cars. He picked up Vogue and flicked through it, beautiful, half-naked, sophisticated women clattering with jewellery. But he couldn't concentrate to read any of the text. His letter lay face up on the chair beside him. Your family doctor has referred you to the diabetic clinic to see if you're diabetic. To find this out, we will need to perform a glucose tolerance test. He remembered a crazy guy at school who had diabetes, who went into comas. But school was 50 years ago. Since being given his appointment, he'd read up even more frightening stuff about your eyesight and how you could lose it. About your extremities, how, in some cases, they could go gangrenous and have to be lopped off. This yellow outpatient card said, Please bring this card with you when you next attend. A door at the far end of the waiting room opened and screeched closed. It took about 30 or 40 seconds to close with its irritating, long, dry squeak. There was a damping device on the mechanism to make it close more slowly. But no sooner had it closed fully and the noise stopped than somebody else came through it and began the whole process over again. Collective responsibility is not being taken, he wanted to yell. If he had diabetes and had to come back to this god-forsaken place, then next time he'd bring an oil can. Recently, in the newspaper, he'd read that grumpy old men were more liable to heart attacks than old men who were not grumpy. <laughs> he tried to calm down, to de-grump. <laughs> he took out his Chekhov and looked at the list of contents, something short. He did a quick sum, subtracting the page number from the following page number after each story. It was an old copy, and the cheap paper had turned the colour of toast at the edges. The Vanguard Library edition, translated by the wonderful Constance Garnet. 
A nurse walked in and called people by their first names. She came to him. Hi, my name is Phil, she said, and that's Mina at reception. She explained what was going to happen. He had to drink a whole bottle of Lucozid, and then, over the next couple of hours, every half hour in fact, he had to give both blood and urine samples. He nodded. He understood. He had grey hair, he was overweight, but he understood. <laughs> she took him into the corridor and sat him down in what looked like a wheelchair. Did you have any breakfast? she said. A cup of tea, maybe? Some toast? No. The leaflet said to come fasting. Not everybody pays attention to that. What a waste of everybody's time. Do people actually do that? You'd be surprised, she said. It turned out not to be a wheelchair, but a weighing machine. She calculated something against a chart on the wall. Did you bring a sample? Yes. He rummaged in his pocket and produced the bottle. It had returned to room temperature. Spring water with a hint of apple. <laughs> she handed it over and the nurse put a label on it. It might be a little flavoured, he said. I'm not going to drink it. She whisked it away into another room. When he was back in his seat by the window, she brought him Lucozade, a plastic glass and four lozenge-shaped paper tubs. She stuck a white label with a barcode on each and wrote a time on the rim with her biro. He wanted to make terrible jokes about giving urine samples in her name, Phil. <laughs> Phil Lees, please. P for Phil. But he realised everybody must do this. He said, I hope these are not for blood. She laughed. She had a nice face in her early forties. All at once now, she said. He poured the Lucozade into the plastic glass and drank it, refilled it, drank it. Halfway down he had to stop. His swallow refused to work against the sweet bubbles. Eventually he finished everything and childishly expected praise. When she left him, he tried to concentrate on his book. A story called The Beauties looked feasible. Subtract 173 from 183. It'd be hard with all this toing and froing, all the stabbing and pissing, all the people around him talking. He didn't think he'd read it before. That had happened several times with Turgenev. After 50 pages, he'd said, I've read this before. <laughs> it went down so easily. Nobody gagged on Turgenev. But Chekhov is Chekhov. He draws you in. He writes as if the thing is happening in front of your eyes. An unnamed boy of 16, maybe Chekhov himself, and his grandfather in a chase are travelling through the summer heat and dust of the countryside to Rostov on the dawn. They stop to feed their horses at a rich Armenian's, and the grandfather talks endlessly to the owner about farms and feedstuffs and manure. The place is described in minute detail down to the floors, painted with yellow ochre, and the flies, and more flies. 
Then tea is brought in by a barefoot girl of sixteen wearing a white kerchief. And when she turns from the sideboard to hand the boy his cup, she has the most wonderful face he has ever seen. He feels a wind blow across his soul. The beauties had captured him. He knew exactly what Chekhov was talking about. He was there, in that room, experiencing the same things. At precisely a minute before a quarter to the hour, he lifted one of his cardboard peapots and went to the technician's laboratory. The technician was a woman with a long brown hair who smiled at him. She wore a white coat. Her breast pocket had several barrow ink lines descending into it. She explained what she was about to do. You can choose to have it done on four fingers, or you can have it done on one finger four times. That's the choice. Four sore fingers or one very sore finger. <laughs> he chose his middle finger and presented it almost like an obscene gesture. <laughs> he looked away, anticipating a scalpel or dagger. There was a winter tree outside. Without leaves, a crow's nest was visible. There was a click and the stab was amazingly tiny, like the smallest rose thorn in the world. He hardly felt anything. The technician squeezed his finger and harvested his drop of blood into a capillary tube the size of a toothpick. When she'd finished, she nodded at his cardboard container. He lifted it and sought out the lavatory. The sign on the door indicated both men and women. Inside, there were adjacent cubicles, and the mother of the woman in the black hijab was coming out of the ladies, bearing her cardboard pot before her like an offering. He smiled and opened the outer door for her. Inside the men's lavatory was a poster about impotence, a man sitting on a park bench with his head in his hands. How did he discover his condition in a public park? <laughs> Talk to your doctor, said the words. Conjuring up a sample so soon after the one in the house took a long time. But eventually he succeeded and left it in the laboratory. The technician was working near the window. Her long hair was down her back almost to her waist. There you are, he said. Thank you. The nurse brought him a plastic jug of tap water and ice. You might be able to give blood every time, she said, but for the other, you need to keep drinking this. She swirled the jug, he swirled the jug and poured himself some. It sounded hollow compared to ice against glass. Sipping, he tried to return to the checkoff. A distant radio was far enough away to be indistinct, but it was still distracting. At the moment, the only other sound was the, of magazine pages being turned, the kind of magazines which were looked at rather than read. Hello and OK. Flick, flick, flick. The nurse, Phil, came in and announced a name. Andrew? Andrew Elliot? 
A man stood and swaggered forward, responding as if he had just been chosen for a Hollywood audition. In a music hall kind of American drawl, he said, You called for me, lady? Everybody in the waiting room laughed. He tried to return to the mood of that hot, dusty afternoon in Rostov on the dawn, but the smile was still on his face. He couldn't concentrate. He was at that age when things were starting to go wrong. Knee joints were beginning to scringe. Putting on socks had become a burden. Pains where there shouldn't be pains. Breathlessness. Occasional dizziness. An immensely fat woman came in. All her weight seemed to be below her waist. Her thighs and lower belly bulged as if she'd left her bedding in her tights. Sheets, pillows, duvets, the lot. After her, an old couple came through the doors, panting after the stairs. They sank onto chairs, incapable of speech, and sat there, mouth-breathing. They both had skin the colour of putty. When he began to read again, he found it awkward to turn the page, because, like many people in the waiting room, he had a piece of lint clenched between his chosen finger and his thumb. The boy in the beauties, when confronted with the girl in the white kerchief, feels himself utterly inferior, sunburned, dusty, and only a child. But that does not stop him adoring her, and having adored her, his reaction is one of sadness. Where does such perfection fit into the world? He hears the thud of her bare feet on the board floor. She disappears into a grimy outhouse which is full of the smell of mutton and angry arguments. The more he watches her going about her tasks, the more painful becomes his inexplicable sadness. The first part of the story ends and Chekhov switches to another similar incident when he has become a student, maybe a medical student. This time he is travelling by train. In the waiting room of the diabetic clinic the talk was of medical stuff. I have an irregular heartbeat. Oh, God help you. I'm just trying to keep the weight down. Does the stick help? It helps the balance. This is all in front of me, he thought. But despite his age, he felt good, felt ridiculously proud he had outlived his father, who had died at the early age of 45. He didn't have a problem that would drive him to sit on a park bench with his head in his hands. So he felt good about that. He looked up at the clock above the posters. He picked up his peapot and headed for the laboratory again. This time, when he looked away from the little machine which drew his blood, he saw a crow settling in the branches of the tree outside. The thinnest of pinpricks, and again she milked the blood from his finger into her glass capillary. The stranger was holding his hand. Her perfume radiated into his space. Not perfume, but soap. Maybe the smell of her shampoo. Chamomile, maybe. She clipped her capillary to a little sloped rack. There were two of them now. Like the double red line, 
he'd had to rule beneath the title of his essays at school. He provided another urine sample. When he sat down again in the waiting room, he finished his jug of water and asked for another. He returned to his book. And as he read, the room gradually disappeared. Somewhere in southern Russia, a train stopped at a small station on a May evening. The sun was setting, and the station buildings threw long shadows. The student gets off to stretch his legs. He sees the station master's daughter. She, too, is utterly captivating. As she stands talking to an old lady, the youth remembers the Armenian's daughter, the girl with the white kerchief, and the sadness it brought him. Again, he experiences the whoosh of feeling and tries to analyse it, but cannot. Not only was the student Chekhov watching this exquisite woman. She was being watched by almost all the men on the platform, including a ginger telegraphist with a flat, opaque face sitting by his apparatus in the station window. What chance for someone like him? The stationmaster's daughter wouldn't look at him twice. He was struck yet again by the power of the word. Here he was, about to be told he had difficult changes to make to his life, and yet by reading words on a page, pictures of Russia a hundred years ago come into his head. Not only that, but he can share sensations and emotions with this student character, created by a real man he never met, and translated by a real woman he had never met. It was so immediate, the choice of words so delicately accurate, that they blotted out the reality of the present. He ached now for the stationmaster's daughter the way the student aches. It's in his blood. He paused and looked at the clock. It was time again. He gave another blood sample and when providing the urine sample he splashed the label. He patted it dry with toilet roll and hoped that the technician with the long hair wouldn't notice. In the waiting room, he returned to his book. Was the story accurate about such feelings? Was this not about women as decoration? Neither woman in the story said anything, showed anything of her inner self in order to be attractive. Was this not the worst of Hollywood before Hollywood was ever thought of? Audrey Hepburn, Julia Roberts, the stationmaster's daughter... There's the water you asked for. Oh, thanks. He poured himself another glass. The water was icy. With his concentration broken, he looked at the posters on the wall. He could barely bring himself to read them. They made him quick for his future. But he couldn't be that bad. His doctor had referred him because he was borderline. The poster warnings were for the worst cases. Diabetic retinopathy can lead to permanent loss of vision, blindness, never to be able to read again. Atherosclerosis, leading to dry gangrene. Wear well-fitting shoes. Visit your chiropodist frequently. Care for your feet, or else you'll lose them, was the implication. Jesus. He drained the glass and poured himself another 
The door, which had been silent for a while, screeched open and a wheelchair was pushed through. A woman in her seventies, wearing a dressing gown, was being pushed by a younger woman. The screeching door must lead to the wards. When they came into the waiting area, it was obvious the old woman had no legs. She wore a blue cellular blanket over her lap. She was empty to the floor. The woman was pushing her. She sat down on a chair in front of her. From their body language they were mother and daughter. Their talk became entangled with the Chekhov and he read the same line again and again. He needed silence. During his final visit to give blood he tried to joke with the technician about there being no more left in that finger. This time there were two crows perched on either side of the black nest. In the lavatory he noticed that his last sample was crystal clear. The water was just going through him. He sat and finished the Chekhov. It was a wonderful story, which ended with the train moving on under a darkening sky, leaving behind the station master's beautiful daughter. In the departing carriage there is an air of sadness. The last image is of the figure of the guard coming through the train, beginning to light the candles. The next thing he was aware of was hearing his name called by a male voice. He was sitting with his eyes closed, savouring the end of the story. He stood. The doctor smiled. He was not wearing a white coat. He had a checked shirt on and was distinctly overweight, straining the buttons. He led him into an office and looked up after consulting a piece of paper. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to say you don't have diabetes. You have something we call impaired glucose tolerance, which could well develop into diabetes. But you must begin to take some avoiding action, more exercise, better diet. Talk it over with your GP. I'll write to him with these results. Thank you. As he walked to the head of the stairs, he heard the distant door screech for one last time. He will not have to come back. No need for the oil can. He went out into the November midday and across the car park. The sun was shining. He looked up at the blue sky, crisscrossed with jet trails. People travelling, going places, meeting folk. He thought of those people he had just left who daren't misplace their outpatient cards. Above him, the crows made a raucous cawing. His middle finger felt tender and bruised. He took out his mobile and phoned his wife, dabbing the keys with his thumb. He had seen her across a dance floor forty years ago and felt the wind blow across his soul. She sounded anxious and concerned. Well, I'm okay, he said. To, to end with a <laughs> I'll end with a beginning um, there's a story here called The Trojan Sofa 
Um, and I'll just read a couple of pages. I love, I love when you don't know where you are uh, in, in, in a movie or, or in a story or, or whatever. Um, uh, I love those movies that begin, you know, Tokyo. People driving about. And, and New York. Uh, Belfast. Uh, and you say, well, I wonder what's going to happen. Um, and uh, the, the beginning of this story is a bit like that. I'll just read a couple of pages. Um, the Trojan Sofa. It's dark, pitch black, and everything's shaking and bumping. I'm not scared. Just of some what-if-nots in my gut. What if they have a dog? That would be me, well and truly or a burglar alarm with laser beams like they have in the movies and when you walk through the beam which you can't see the alarm goes off in the nearest cop shop but my dad would have all these questions he would have asked them all whenever he was selling he sells all over the place fairs, car boot sales a stall in the markets but quality stuff or as much of it as he can get He's good, friendly, knows what he's doing. This is a good piece, worth quite a bit, as you well know, and he'd laugh with a customer who had just paid up. If you'd more stuff like this, you'd want to have an alarm in the house. I don't like alarms. Or, I've already got the best in the market. And that'd be my dad clued in. You wouldn't want dog hairs all over a good fabric like that. <laughs> I don't have a dog. And that would be me dad clued in a bit more. He's a dab hand at getting people to tell him things. I'm on my left hand side, the side of sleep on at night, because I know there'll not be much turning round in the foreseeable future. My knees bent only slightly. I've all my bits and pieces. You've bugger all to do except keep your wits about you and open the door. In this case, two doors. I'm in my first year at grammar school. Got the 11 plus, no problem. Even though I hadn't reached 11. That's good for a boy from the markets. When my dad went up to the college, the president told him, I got the highest marks of anybody in Northern Ireland. Smart boy wanted. My dad sells anything and everything, bric-a-brac, furniture, you name it. I can hear his voice now talking to Uncle Eamon. Two flights of stairs and you're out of puff already. It's the bloody smoking, I hear Eamon say. Why don't you give it up? It was no problem for me. Your right hand down a bit there, take it easy. I can hear the bumping of their feet on the carpeted stairs. It weighs a fucking ton, says Uncle Eamon. Watch your tongue in front of the boy, says my dad. I hear them both laughing. He has very strong opinions, has my dad. A war is two sides, one against the other, he says. It's as simple as that. The wrong done to this country was so great we can do anything in retaliation. If it's done against the Brits, it's okay by him. A broken phone is a British liability, he says, and so's a burnt bus. There are things that have to be replaced by the English exchequer. That's why he likes to deal with the other side. I was there one time 
when he told when he sold a three-piece suite to this guy, the most orange man-looking man I've ever seen. You could tell what he was from a mile away. Big fat jowls, the moustache, the accent. Your address, sir? When he says the part of the town where he lives, my dad looks at Uncle Eamon as if to say, wouldn't you know? <laughs> yes, we can deliver free, says my dad. So the next day, I'm into the sofa with my gear and the hessian stapled on back onto the frame. It's usually an overnight. Next morning, when everybody's away to work and the place is quiet, I Stanley knife my way out and open the door. <laughs> my dad and Uncle Eamon are sitting there in the van smiling. And in they come. The sofa is the first thing they lift because it has all the evidence in it where I've bed and breakfasted. The modus operandi. <laughs> then they clear the place. And it's one up for all Ireland. <laughs> This is a, a very beautifully balanced collection. You begin with the first story you read, which is very violent. It's a story which uh, has these people not seeking violence on a day out in the car, and suddenly this appalling thing happens. And then, do you feel that this is the way that the human imagination can cope with, with violence through reading, you know, when it's actually... Well, I, I don't think it can cope with violence at all. Um, but... Uh, violence happens and in some way has to be registered uh, that uh, when you're a writer or when you're even a human being like, uh, and the world falls apart in front of you uh, I mean I, I was brought up in the north of Ireland uh, born 1942 and uh, the, the problems well the problems started long before that but the, the actual violence uh, the killing and the bombing didn't start till 1968 and by that time I was a, uh, an adult human being and, and you just watched the place disintegrate around you and in some way being a writer then you wanted to record that and I, I, I do think that writing uh, really does kind of get spurred on by anger uh, there's nothing you can do in a violent situation and, and except be angry uh, and uh, that's no use really uh, so to kind of recollect it in, in relative tranquility uh, and to, to put it down. I mean, that was a kind of gateway, I think, for this collection that, uh, uh, that the story on the roundabout uh, uh, shows it like, you know, the, the big wheel of life or whatever yeah. you would say. And, uh, and uh, <coughs> that it contains, at the same time, it contains an act of mindless violence and it contains an act of uh, of wonderful humanity and then the second story which sounds they say in drawing like primary observation is it a different kind of anxiety isn't it again something happening in somebody's life that is going to throw them off course and make them lose lose their way but in a in a in a much less violent way yeah. just every day you know the benefits of aging i wanted to ask you about the naming of people in the stories because um you don't for example, the story that the last story in the book, which is really quite a long story up the coast, which is again a very terrifying story to read. Um, you, you do, the only people you you name are the 
old lady Jenny, the bar lady, and the Americans at the end. And I just wondered if there was anything about, you know, there was a reason for this. And yet there's one story again. I'm no good at names. You're no good at names. <laughs> well, can we maybe start by asking about this? There's a wonderful story which is, is, is about death, but not a violent death. The... Um, yeah, the, the wedding ring, oh, and it's dedicated to Ellen Tierney. And would you like to tell us who she was? She's well. No, I mean, I, I think I think she was a, a, a relative of mine. Uh, for I I suppose I've reached an age where you start to to be interested in family history, mm -hmm. and, and there was a lot of it on TV and stuff like that. And uh, uh, I had started it actually before they were doing it on TV, but it, it was really interesting. And uh, the the best way to find out about your family history is to talk to older members of the family. And uh, talking to my wonderful Auntie Betty, uh, the only kind of skeleton in the cupboard uh, was uh, a person who, uh, I just see, how can I tell it without telling the story? Um, <laughs> that she died young this Ellen yeah. Tierney and uh, w when she was being led out and washed that uh, they discovered a, a ring she was wearing a wedding ring around her neck uh, on a chain uh, and my auntie Betty said that she had she had married one of the boarders but the question was had they lived a married life or not or, or had they just been like like teenagers uh, playing at being married or uh, and and I was left with this as a story and, and as a story writer um, you try and answer that and I'll not tell you how it, it's a uh, wonderful story um, the up the coast which is is I find incredibly hard to read I had to push myself on and because we're in your hands you know you resolve it so beautifully and it's most beautifully written um, there's something very important that you see in that um, after she's had this violence unleashed upon her and she says something had profoundly changed and she had no way of showing it she had no way of talking about it the outside and the inside they were not connected and never would be again seems a very important passage really in the context of the, of the stories I mean yeah the, the, there are awful things happen to people uh, almost everybody's life you can you can see how I mean if you're living in Beirut at the moment there are awful things happening around you and uh, as a human being you try to either exist through that uh, and in your own personal lives and your own personal traumas things happen and uh, and you've got to think about that and how you can how you can best cope with that it could be disease it could be a uh, a car crash or an accident or it could be at the hands of some utterly villainous person like us in this story and uh, um, you just get through it the best you can that's one of the great things about the collection is it's not you know it's not depressing or bleak because there's so much humanity in them and the, the man in this story the villainous man is beautifully balanced by the doctor mm -hmm. who I feel is you in spirit <laughs> in the story but uh, he's a superbly drawn man, as is his wife. Okay. And that's a very... <laughs> that's something that's also, you know, 
wonderful in your writing and, and we saw very much in, in Grace Notes that you are extremely good with writing women. Um, you're very sympathetic to women. Your women are always very real. Did you? I know you have three daughters and a wife as well as a son, but you mentioned a nant. Were you brought up with many? Yeah, well, there were lots of women and, around, yeah. and and, uh, and Andy Betty, and uh, oh, yeah, and uh, I mean, my father was some kind of a saint because he brought in uh, we, we, with this house in, in North Belfast, and uh, uh, he brought in my grandfather, grandmother and great aunt to live with us uh, and they they had uh, a room where after tea they would go and sit in this room uh, by themselves so that there could be a family life and there could be the, the Crumbly's life uh, <laughs> and, uh, but we would go up to the Crumbly's to, to, and, and Aunt Mary would read to us read uh, that this poor uh, taxi driver didn't know about uh, and uh, although it was only in at Blighton and stuff but it was a wonderful experience um, so there are old women there and across the street was my auntie Sissy and, and her daughter and uh, to have three daughters of your own to be married to a woman uh, all of these things are, are have a great bearing on, on your writing life uh, and uh, to try and portray that in some way uh, I, I tried to do it and uh, it came out in, in that novel and, and in some uh, some of the short stories there are some marvellous uh, old women in, in this collection um, could we have some questions well, just floor, before please? you go uh, <laughs> 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 Andy, Andy Betty had a great uh, she was full of good sayings and uh, uh, that uh, she was seen on her hands and knees round the the, the the toilet one time cleaning round the the foot of the toilet and, and she shouts to her, her family of six boys I think it was she said all you wains must have crooked flutes uh, <laughs> 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 and another particularly Irish one of, of uh, there was somebody's uh, was been frowned upon for wearing rouge on her cheeks and she would be walking down the street and Auntie Betty said, Rouge, she just spits on the messenger and rubs it on her cheeks. <laughs> the messenger was a little scarlet booklet of the Sacred Heart Messenger. Uh, so, uh, you know, a wonderful kind of uh, wit and charm about, and, and well, not even consciousness of language, just what, what, what uh, a wonderful turn of phrase, uh, and that was great. The old woman in the assessments, wonderful like that. She's great with the phrases, yes. isn't she? That's a fantastic story. That's wonderful. Okay, we've got a, a roving mic, so please put your hand up, and uh, the mic will come to you. Yeah, there's, there's someone here. Yeah, this this man here in the middle. Um, I wondered um, how long it took to collate and collect this um, collection of stories and are, are, are they all new or are they things that you've reworked and reshaped or whatever? I, I suppose about uh, five years um, although some of them they, they, the, the very long uh, and gruelling story called Up the Coast uh, has been around my desk for maybe 15 years um, and like uh, like you trying to read it was difficult I mean Jesus it was worse trying to write it uh, and uh, you know that, that really 
it's such a, a horrendous story that that I, I flinched away from it, and and you'd leave it, and but but being a, a maker of sorts or a writer, or that that you never f throw anything really away, and and then you, another day it would come back, and and you would look at it again, uh, and. Uh, so that is a lo uh, was a long time, but the the, the rest of the stuff are uh, the rest of the stories are all uh, written within the last five years. Um, I think once I said, uh, I once said, uh, you know, a book is not a bowel movement. Uh, you know, it's sort of you, you get one every so often. Uh. Yep, this there. Thank you. Oh, right, and then, and then to the girl in pink. Thank you. Before you became established uh, as a writer, has uh, anyone influenced you when you were a young man? I'm thinking of people like William Trevor, James Joyce, or perhaps even Chekhov. Who was the last? Chekhov. Chekhov, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose one of the people that um, I really liked, uh, even at school, the, your last year at school, I came across these short stories by a man called Michael McLaverty. Uh, and uh, there was a couple of stories anthologized in school books, and I thought they were wonderful, with uh, The Wild Duck's Nest and uh, another story called The Potcheen Maker. Uh, and I read those and thought they were wonderful. And I, I had a really good neighbor who was an English teacher uh, she was about two doors away from me and uh, I don't know how I managed to tell her I was writing because uh, at that time you were terribly ashamed of, of that I mean it was a bit like wanking or something you know <laughs> but I mean everybody had to go at it but uh, so I I'd sort of said to her and she said well if you write anything bring it and show it to me uh, which I did and she looked at it and would encourage me to write and but she said one time, she said, I'm going over to the university and Michael McLaverty's given a talk about the short story. Would you like to come? And I went over and uh, Michael McLaverty was there. Uh, he was a great and enthusiastic communicator. Uh, he talked about all these wonderful short stories and how, oh, you must read uh, Eudora Welty and, oh, Catherine Ann Porter, oh, she's wonderful, and Chekhov, and, you know, and everybody was really trying to dash away and read all these people that evening. Uh, and uh, somebody like him, when you've read the work, uh, and uh, he's a lovely novel called Call My Brother Back and several other novels as well but uh, uh, so I would have thought that looking back that, that somebody like him would have been an influence because the, the act of writing seemed to be so distant so far away from what I was I wanted to be just a uh, a footballer who would be picked for Manchester United or something. Uh, you know the way you always looked at the guy standing on the sidelines in the, the gabardine raincoat, you say, he's a Manchester United scout. Uh, <laughs> he never was, he was an old boy around the corner. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so, there would be somebody like him uh, that would make you want to write. Uh, it's never an incident 
that makes you want to write. It's reading another writer. It's reading a story and say, I want to write. I would like to be able to write as well as that. Uh, and then, of course, the, 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 the short storiness of it led on to uh, Hemingway and Joyce and uh, all of those people. The, 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 that explosion of interest when you were at that age uh, trying to read everybody, Kafka, uh, everybody pitching in something different and, and appreciating that. Right. Question kind of follows on actually from what you're saying there. Um, a number of years ago, a, a student of mine um, entitled his dissertation "The Art of the Short Story," and he dealt with a number of your works. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us what you see as the art of the short story, and what advice you could give to young people trying to write their own. That's a very hard question. Um, well, the, the, the art of the short story is just the same as the art of writing um, only it's at a shorter length <laughs> Flannery O'Connor wonderful writer, American I thought it was an Irish man but it turned out to be an American woman um, I mean she talks about fictions of a certain length uh, you know, I mean the, the length of the thing really is is immaterial, like James Kelman's wonderful story, Acid, you know, that takes place over a paragraph or uh, the same time as Tolstoy's uh, Death of Ivan Illich takes, like we would call it a novel nowadays. Um, yeah, I remember I remember one time too the, that uh, there was a request in to translate into Russian uh, and they, they asked to translate my short story, Lamb, which I've definitely thought was a novel. <laughs> Talk about a put down. Uh, so, uh, but I mean, I, I can see on a page of, of short story writing just uh, as much insight as, as, as a novel. Um, and the, the problem is that you can't go to a shop somewhere for a technique that you, once you're in the middle of a story you don't know what to do uh, and the number of stories that you've written really isn't an awful lot of help you don't know where to go and you don't know uh, so the, the, to be able to define the art is uh, almost impossible uh, that's probably why they're still doing theses on it <laughs> thank you I'm afraid we have to stop now um, but please come to the signing tent and speak to Bernard there because just out of here and next door he will be signing copies of this wonderful book um, which I urge you to buy and read if you haven't already done so. Could you please join with me and give an enormous vote of thanks to Brian <laughs>